and ask the rest of us to grab our copy of God's Word, and we are going to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, as we talk today about the Holy Spirit and abiding in Christ. If you're new here, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, um, maybe if you don't even own one, whatever, uh, there are pew Bibles, what we call pew Bibles, and most, a lot of the chairs, most of the rows, there's probably one close to you, so if you want to grab that and you can open to page 901, page 901, um, that will be where we'll be reading from in the scriptures today. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor at Freshwater. First time here. Um, awesome. Proud, happy to have you. And um, just know that uh, we're ecstatic that you're here with us today on the Lord's Day. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So we're um, glad that you're hanging out with us today on Sunday. Something else that I'll just note quickly and then we'll move on. Many of you have enrolled for um, our new partner class, which starts um, today right after the second service. We're going to start with lunch and then we will um, start with the class um, and uh, if you don't know what that is, maybe you missed the announcement, uh, that's one of the first steps in joining the church and finding out, okay, what does it look like to link arms with this community of believers and to um, you know, pursue the mission that God has given this church. So in that class, we talk about core values, um, we talk about uh, mission statement, vision, where we came from, go over the church covenant, all that good stuff, and that's one of the first steps in, in, in joining the church. So if you didn't register for that, that's okay. If you think that you want to go to that class, you want to hang out with us, we're going to be done about 2.30. So if you still want to, to hang out and go to that, just let me know afterwards. Just come up and say, Josh, I'm going to stay for the class, and we'd be ecstatic for that. The next one isn't going to roll around for, for quite a while. We do it about um, every three or four months or so. I don't remember the exact date, so it'll be quite a while before that next one comes around. As you're turning to John chapter 15, Laney... My um, oldest daughter, beautiful daughter up here in the front row, her and I were in our backyard this spring and we were playing or we were working in the garden or I don't even remember what we were doing. We were doing something when a man approached us and he offered my daughter a gift. And he lives kind of behind us up the hill a little bit and I hadn't really encountered him except in waving as we passed by. But he um, walked up with a bouquet of flowers and he offered this bouquet to my daughter, at which she, of course, accepted them, as any sweet little six-year-old girl would do. And um, we thanked him, we made some small talk, and then we eventually uh, made our way into the kitchen to look for a vase. And tucked under the kitchen sink, way back in that area that nobody ever goes to, we found a glass vase that I'm sure it's a lot like many of the vases that are in your homes. And we took the vase out, we put some water in the bottom, we stuffed the flowers down in the vase, and we sat the vase on the island in our kitchen, and we just kind of, you know, adored the flowers that this dude had been so gracious to give us. And um, a day went by, and I'd stop there in the kitchen, look at the flowers, and smell the flowers, and um, they were still healthy. And then another day went by, and I'd stop and smell the flowers, and they were still healthy. And then another day goes by, and another day goes by, and then another until eventually... Um, it wasn't too long before, upon close inspection of this bouquet, it showed that some of the flowers were still very healthy while some of them were beginning to droop and sag and, you know, kind of lose a little bit of their color. So I wondered to myself, huh, you know, I wonder what it is that is making some of these flowers thrive and still retain their beauty and still retain their health while others that are right next to them in the same vase in the same bouquet are dying right before our eyes. 
And that's why I noticed that not all the stems were the same length. Now, every week y'all get some type of an opportunity to learn from something stupid that I've done or something that I don't know. This is one of those opportunities. I really should have checked it before we stuffed them down in the vase and put water in there. Uh, But nonetheless, I didn't. And now some of these flowers had went several days without having any water because the stems were too short to reach the water level in the vase. While others next to them, remember, same bouquet, same flowers, were wonderful because they had plenty of water, and and now it was apparent that some were stagnant and dead, while others in the same bouquet were vibrant and colorful and alive. And I was thinking about that image of those two degrees of flowers being commingled in the same vase and in the same bouquet, and I thought that is a wonderful illustration of how many of us can feel regarding our spiritual growth. And here's what I mean when I say that. Some of you, you... Go to church, right? Obviously you're here, so you're doing good in that way. Um, You might give, you might serve, you might go to life group, you might go on an international disciple-making trip with us, you might even be planning on attending our new partner class this afternoon, but when you're honest with yourself and when you're honest with others, you feel like everybody around you is on this wonderful spiritual journey where um, it's nothing but rainbows and cupcakes and unicorns, and they're growing so quickly and so rapidly at this incredible place, and you want that in your life, and you desire that for yourself, but honestly, you just feel kind of stagnant. And you're kind of disappointed in the lack of quick spiritual growth in your life. I know some of you feel like that because I know you well enough and we talk about this kind of stuff and you sometimes feel the same way that I do. Well, today in our scripture, I'm going to tell you what Jesus says has to exist in your life if we are going to produce true, long-lasting spiritual fruit and come to a position of spiritual maturity. Now, before I show you that, let me just remind you of where we are. The Gospel of John is the fourth of four Gospels in the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle John. He's the Apostle that, is, that uh, the Bible says Jesus loved, so he had a special position in Jesus' eyes. He states at the end of the book that he has written these things so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in Christ's name. So we're now in the final days of Christ's life. He's very soon going to be arrested and killed. And right now, I believe Jesus is preparing his followers for the very soon day when they're going to wake up, they're going to roll out of bed, they're going to put their feet on the ground, and Jesus is no longer going to be with them in the flesh. And Jesus is preparing them for that day by teaching them about the Holy Spirit. Now remember last week, when we talk about God, you should think Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, you should thank God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is just as much God as God the Father is God and, how, and, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, is God. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead that lives in Christ's followers. So when you feel that urging to repent or when you feel that prompting to pray or when you feel that nudge or that push to share your faith with others, Um, know that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's God, the Holy Spirit, ushering you and kind of poking your heart to get you just to, you know, to move in the direction that he wants you to move in. So last week we saw what? We saw three ways the Holy Holy Spirit equips you to follow Christ. If you missed that teaching, sermons are always on the website. But this week I believe Jesus continues teaching us about the Holy Spirit and preparing his followers for his departure when he begins to tell the disciples one of the main reasons that we may not be maturing spiritually as quickly as we would like to. 
So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you very plainly what it's going to take from you to begin producing spiritual fruit in your life. So if you're sitting there and you feel like that flower that is stagnant, and you feel like that flower that is just not thriving and spiritual growth the way that you would like to, and you feel like everybody around you is growing by leaps and bounds and they're growing spiritually, and you feel like you're not, I want you to listen to the text that we are looking at today because I think it's going to speak to us. I'm going to give you um, how or uh, what it takes for us to grow spiritually. I'm going to give you that in one long statement But we're going to divide that statement into three smaller statements, three smaller parts, but really it's going to be one long sentence. Each one of those statements is going to build off of the last. I'm just going to tell you the whole statement right now so we know exactly where we are going. Here's how we can begin to mature spiritually. We're going to see abide in Christ for all that you need because of the love that Christ has shown for you. That's where we're going. Abide in Christ for all that you need because of the love that Christ has has shown for you. Let's talk about that statement. Let's talk about that first part, abide in Christ. That's number one, by the way. Abide in Christ. Because look with me now at John chapter 15. Let's read verses 1 through 6. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So let me set this up for us just a little bit. Jesus is using a mental picture of a vine to conjure up in the listener's mind the importance of bearing spiritual fruit. So before I even describe the image, understand that a grapevine was a a truly significant image or a, a, a significant thing in the lives and the minds of the Israelites at this time. It was kind of a symbol of national pride. It appeared on a lot of coins that were minted. There was a giant, beautiful grapevine that was on the gates of the temple complex. Um, You would have seen the grapevine displayed and carved into significant structures all throughout the country. So the way that they would feel when they saw a grapevine might be similar to the way that some of us feel when we see our flag, where we have this feeling of national pride or... You know, thankfulness for all that God has done for us. Well, Jesus chooses to grab hold of that symbol of national pride and he uses it to describe spiritual fruit bearing. And here's how the image plays out. Jesus describes himself as the true vine, doesn't he? We are the branches that come off the vine and God the Father is the vine dresser or we might think of him as being like a gardener. And this image, as it unfolds, I want you to know we see first a warning and then we see a promise. We see a warning, and we see a promise. Let's talk about the warning first, and then we'll see how Jesus follows that up with a promise. You'll notice right off the bat, Jesus says, Every branch that does not bear fruit, the vine dresser takes away. And we find out in verse 6 what the vine dresser does with those branches, and then he gathers them, and he throws them into the fire where they are burned. So, guess what? First thing... Jesus does in this image is Jesus warns you and I about hell. 
first thing. And I'm not going to beat this horse forever this morning because I don't believe that's the primary purpose of this illustration. But nonetheless, you need to know that Jesus talked a lot about hell. It's not just in this instance where he says that those who do not bear fruit are going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. But this is a fairly common teaching by Jesus that stretches across all the Gospels. So don't think to yourself, well, hell is just a concept that's in the Old Testament or hell is just a concept that everybody else in the Bible talked about. But Jesus comes along and Jesus just talks about love all the time. No, that's not true at all. He doesn't. He, Jesus warns you and I about hell. He says very plainly that we will go to hell without faith in him. We will be just like a branch that is gathered in his words or thrown into the fire. Just like you think about throwing kindling into a fireplace. So before we see how this advances, if you're new here, or maybe if you've been here for a long time and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're doubting whether you're a Christian, although I believe there's absolutely no value in using scare tactics and there's no value in somebody emotionally manipulating you and frightening you into becoming Christians, at the same time, the Bible is clear and Jesus is crystal clear that if you are not following him, if you have not repented and believed, this is what is waiting for us. Hell, according to Jesus, this is what he says. Now... Give me a little bit and uh, a little bit of time, and I promise you, I'm going to tell you exactly what needs to happen for that to be changed in your life. So you're not going to leave here this morning if you hang out for the rest of our time together. You're not going to leave here not knowing exactly what it takes for this to no longer be your destination. So give me just a little bit of time, I promise. Because at the same time, Jesus gives us this very clear warning doesn't he? At the same time he gives us this warning, he also gives us a promise. He gives us a promise. And here's the promise. The promise is that if you do abide in Christ, Jesus says, God will prune you. He will prune you. Now, before I tell you, before we talk about what it means that God prunes us, um, let's ask the question, what does the word abide mean? Because the word abide is not a word that's probably used a lot on a regular basis in your life. Like, I never use the word abide unless I'm uh, in John chapter 15 or something like that. So what, is this, what does this word mean? Well, the word in Greek that Jesus uses is the word minnow. And minnow can mean to abide. It can also mean to uh, remain. It can mean to dwell. It can mean to continue. It can mean to tarry, to endure. The word can be used in all those different ways, and context always determines meaning. So when Jesus draws this image, remember of him being the vine and we are the branches coming off the vine and God the Father is the vine dresser, the one who cuts and prunes the branches and then he tells us multiple times to abide in him. Jesus is saying that you and I must stay connected to and rest in and remain in Jesus Christ. And he even says in verses 4 and 5, if you caught it, there's no other way for you and I to produce any serious, long-standing, eternal value of anything that we do except to remain connected to, to rest in, and to remain in Christ. So here's the promise that Jesus makes. If you abide in Christ, which we must do according to what he said, guess what God does to you? God prunes you. Now, what does that mean? It's, it's weird for me to even look at you and say it, honestly, because that's another word I don't use a lot, so I'm looking at a bunch of people and saying, hey, God prunes you. What, what in the world are we talking about? Well, I've been told that if we stay in the image of a vine, or of a grapevine, 
If you were to drive through the vineyards in the state of California, or even if you drove through the vineyards here in Missouri, we'd understand that all you see in the winter are these nasty-looking twisted trunks, right? And they look horrible. Row after row after row of what look like dead vines just strewn across these trellises. And you've seen them if you travel east from here, especially on 50. Yet in the summer, we drive by, and these what look to be dead vines have been given life, and they're thriving, and they're growing, and the foliage is green, and they're producing grapes, which are used for wine, which I know many of you love so much. And what we don't know is that the health of these vines, many people say, is in direct proportion to the pruning that occurs. And that unless they are cut back, unless somebody comes along and cuts off the dead leaves and cuts off the dead branches, and unless all of that is removed, that grapevine will not produce anywhere near its potential. So guess what, Christian? Jesus says he is the vine. He says you are the branches. He warns you about hell if you don't abide in and rest in him. And then he says, by the way, if you do abide in me, the Father is going to cut you back and prune you. Why? Because that's how God is going to maximize your spiritual fruit. And that pruning may very well hurt. It may be something that's difficult for us to handle. It may sometimes come in the form of discipline from God the Father as he has to do whatever it takes to get you back on the path of righteousness, as he has to use God's people to sometimes bring discipline into your life and to call us back to faith and repentance. But So this, is, this really messes up the way that many of us think about pain, suffering, and difficult circumstances, because I'm not saying all of that stuff. I'm certainly not saying all of that stuff. But some of that God may be using to prune you. And no matter how hard it is to endure, the goal is that it would help you to grow in your faith and your walk with Christ so that God would be glorified. And this is why Jesus tells us to abide. So if we're going to grow spiritually, if we're going to mature spiritually and produce spiritual fruit in our life, it begins with us abiding in Christ. Now the second part of that one statement, abide in Christ for all that you need. For all that you need. That's number two. For all that you need. Because look with me now at verses 7 through 11 in your copy of God's Word. Jesus continues and he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Pause right there. And let's think about what's happening in this scripture. Jesus is still telling them to abide. That's running through all of this chapter, really. And in that abiding, I think Jesus shows them what their life would look like if they abided. And that Jesus moves to a statement about prayer and the fulfillment of prayer and joy. He even discusses too, doesn't he? And let's consider this. Jesus says, look again at verse 7 if you still got your, your Bible open. Jesus says very plainly, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's what he says. And if we were just to read that verse all by itself with no concept of Christianity and no concept of what the rest of the Bible states, um, that looks like an absolute prayer promise, doesn't it? I mean, that looks like a statement that you ask whatever you wish and boy, you are going to get it. So... I, all of a sudden, uh, have wished for an air conditioner that will work better. And if we all corporately wish for that, you know, it'll cool down the temperature in this place. You'll be able to keep up with all of y'all. 
Or we can say, well, I, I suddenly wish to win the lottery. And, you know, guess what? God has promised in his word that, uh, you know, if I wish it and I want it really bad, God's going to give that to me. I mean, whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. Pretty hard to mess that one up. And unfortunately, a lot of people run to verses like this verse, and they look at it apart from everything else in God's Word, and they conclude that God has the duty of doing what I want Him to do. You know, so I want this thing. I want it really bad. I'm going to wish for it. I'm going to pray for it, and look at this. You know, God has promised this. When, and if you notice, the whole premise, remember, is abiding, isn't it? So... The whole premise is having fruit in your life of a growing, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ where you know He is your Lord and your Savior and you rest in and abide in who Jesus is. And here's the key. If you are abiding, if you're staying connected to, if you are resting in Christ, it becomes natural to pray in such a way that we are determined to glorify God rather than just to get what we want. So if you're abiding, your prayer life is going to change. And and what happens is we become interested in how can I pray in such a way that my prayer is ultimately, ultimately about God being glorified in my life. So here's how damaging this can be if we get this wrong. I think about the Israelites on their way to the promised land. And I know that many of you know those stories and that whole account so much better than I could ever know it. But God's people, the Israelites, who are over a million strong, are being kept as slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God to deliver them from slavery. And God sends Moses down to Egypt. And um, God uses Moses to deliver the people from slavery. And then they begin on this march north toward this land that's called the Promised Land, which is described as being abundant and and full of milk and honey. You know, all all, all their needs are going to be met. And boy, when you're reading through that for the first time and you don't know how all those stories are going to unfold, when they're first getting delivered, they're crossing the Red Sea, all that's happening, you're thinking, boy, if there is anybody that is going to be a, an obedient, faith-filled people, it's going to be these people because look at everything that they've just seen God do right before their eyes. But unfortunately, you kind of see the opposite pan out, don't you? You see, God's people consistently, continually testing God. They're demanding signs from God. They're demanding God to perform miracles. They're demanding that God provide whatever they need, whenever they want it. They're doubting whether God is going to provide for them. They're doubting whether God was still going to be with them. I mean, Laney, you and I were just talking about this a couple weeks ago. We were talking about the account of the golden calf and how the Israelites took the jewelry that God had given them and they melted it down and they used that that gold from that jewelry to create what? To create a, a calf in which, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, they're down there, they've melted the jewelry that God gave them, they create an idol, and they're falling down and worshiping this idol. It's created from the gold that God gave to them. And you're, you're left asking the question, how can people do that? You know, How does that work out in their mind? And you find out they did these things over and over and over again. Why? Why? Well, at least partly because they're looking for their identity and their worth and their value and their strength in their circumstances rather than in their relationship with God. They weren't abiding in God for all that they needed, were they? And some people would say they weren't abiding in God at all. Because abiding means that I'm not finding satisfaction and worth and happiness and fulfillment and whether or not gives me what, God gives me what I want. Abiding means that I'm finding all of those things in the fact that I know Him And that He is my Savior. There's a personal relationship so I can run to Him. I can rest in Him. And friends, let me tell you, when you get to that point, when you arrive 
at the destination and you understand that that will revolutionize your life. Because situations come and go. Life is a roller coaster. People sell you out. They don't do what they tell you that they're going to do. Loved ones get sick and die. Other people let you down in every single way. But your relationship with God is rock solid. So it's not going to fail. Now, you might think, preacher, that's impossible. You know, I can't do that. That sounds like some, some really holy Christian kind of stuff, and I'm not really interested in being a super Christian. I just want to be a regular Christian. So, um, you know, I, I'm not really... That kind of sounds like something I can never see my life in that way. I can never see my life as, as existing and being solely here to bring glory to God. That's not something that could possibly be on my radar. And you know what? If you're thinking that, I want you to know probably every single one of us has felt that tension at some point, and I think that's why... Jesus gives us verses 12 through 17. Because in verses 12 through 17, we see the last part of the statement on how we can begin to grow spiritually. Abide in Christ for all that you need. And now finally, number three, because of the love that Christ has shown you. Because of the love that Christ has shown you. Now, let's see the love that Christ has shown you. Let's see what he says about this. Look at verses 12 through 17. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So now Jesus tells us to abide, which he's been telling us the whole time. He shows us what the abiding looks like, and now he presents himself as the perfect example of love so that we can know why we should abide in him. Now, why does Jesus present himself as the perfect example of love? so ecstatic that you asked. I think it's because Jesus wants to remind his disciples who, remember, are about to have their world rocked. They're about to see this Messiah, this Savior that they've spent the last three years with. They're about to see him hanging off a cross. So Jesus wants to remind them before they go through this crazy series of events that ends in the crucifixion of the Son of God, Jesus wants to remind them that there is no one that loves them more than God loves them. So he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And guess what we're going to get to see him do? Exactly that. Later, these things I command you so that you will love one another. So catch this, when we do not abide... Here's the picture. When we don't rest in and find our strength in and stay connected to Christ, we are running away from the one person that loves you more than anybody else and we're running to a world that has consistently and habitually always hurt you and has always failed you. And we see this over and over in the world. I mean, I see this in my life in my personal life, in the times that I sin and I stray from God. I mean, just think about drug addiction. What is that? Drug, it's running to something that everybody knows is going to hurt you. It's going to destroy you. And we think about our insatiable desire for more stuff, right? More clothes, 
a nicer house, a better car, the newest, bestest phone that's out, whatever. What is that? It's running to and resting in things that we know are only going to provide a temporary fake satisfaction that's going to wane. You know, it's going to go away eventually. When we think about our desire to always get a promotion, always advance before the other guy, you know, always be on that track to success, that might be a God-given ambition. That's very true. It may very well be that. But it also might be us thinking that our value and our worth comes in our worldly position rather than abiding in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. So, friend, if you hear anything this morning, here's what I want you to know. We abide in Jesus because there is absolutely no one that loves you and that provides for you and that pursues you the way that God does. So don't sell yourself short by abiding in and resting in the things of the world. Abide in Christ for all that you need because of the love that Christ has shown to us. Now let me share just a quick couple words and then we'll be done for the morning. If you've been here for much time as we've been working through the Gospel of John, we've been here for quite a while, then you know that we've got to see um, the I am statements of Jesus. There are seven of those in the Gospel of John. We've paid special attention to them every time one of those pops up. And Jesus... Um, gives us the seventh one this morning when he says, I am the true vine, right? He gives us other ones earlier in the book. He says, I am the, the, the light of the world. He says, I am the bread of life. You, you know the list. But of those seven, did you know that, did you notice, I should say, that of those seven I am statements, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, that's the only time when he calls himself the true something. It's the only time he uses that word. And here's why. Jesus is intentionally contrasting himself with Israel and its false leaders. And that he's saying, look folks, you've been connected to a vine. Don't get me wrong. You've been connected to false religion. You've been finding your hope in these religious leaders and all these rules that you think you've been following for God. But guess what? I am the true vine. I'm not that false vine that you've been connected to. I am the true vine. And now... You have a choice. You can continue to abide in the fake vine, which for many of us might be the the vine of our bank account, or it might be the vine of our job, it might be the vine of our family, it might be the vine of self-righteousness or our level of education or personal intelligence or wit or whatever. So you can continue to be connected, completely your choice, continue to be connected to the false vine of the world, whatever it might be for you, or you can be connected to me. That's what he's saying. That's the invitation. And I would beg you to consider before you leave here this morning, what are you abiding in? What's your hope in? What do you find your value in? Is it something other than the true vine? Is, as Jesus says, the gardener going to come and cut that vine off and throw it into the fire? Or are you abiding in Christ and Christ alone? Now, if you hear that and you say, you know, preacher, I've been abiding in something other than Jesus, let me tell you the greatest news that the world has, has ever known. It really is the greatest news. It's the news that's changed my life. And as you look around in this room, it's the news that has changed so many people's lives. Jesus has come and Jesus has paid the penalty for your sins so that if you are willing to repent and believe, guess what? You can be reconciled to God. You can be connected to that true vine, that vine that produces life and eternal life forever. So let me just share a quick little story, and then we'll, and then we'll uh, be about done for the morning. There was a, a preacher named Roland Hill, and um, rather 
I mean, I'm about to say insignificant. He wasn't an insignificant preacher, but he's probably a guy that I had never heard of before I heard this account. But nonetheless, this is the kind of dude that I would like to hang out with if he was still alive today. But he was um, preaching to a crowd of people, open-air preaching, you know, out on the street corner, maybe at a fair, who knows, this is a long time ago. And um, as he's preaching, he sees the wealthy aristocrat, Lady Anne Erskine, drive up in her coach. So... You know, I'm assuming this is quite a while ago. And seeing her, Reverend Roland Hill, he changes his sermon. And he looks at her and begins to say, begins to preach to her, and he says, I have something for sale. He says, yes, I have something for sale. It is the soul of Lady Anne Erskine. Is there anyone here that will bid for her soul? Ah, do I hear a bid? Who bids? Satan bids. Satan, what will you give for her soul? I will give riches and honor and pleasure. But stop, do I hear another bid? Yes, Jesus Christ bids. Jesus, what will you give for her soul? I will give eternal life. Lady Anne Erskine, you have heard the two bids. Which will you take? So Lady Erskine, hearing the gospel, even in that simple message, decides I'm no longer going to be connected to the false vines that were in her life. I am now going to be connected to the true vine that is Jesus Christ. And she repented at that point, and her life was forever changed. She repented, she placed her faith in Jesus, and guess what? Exact same invitation to everybody hearing this message this morning. Exact same invitation. So, for you to no longer be the vine that is going to be cut off and thrown into the fire, guess what? You can repent and you can believe, you can follow Christ, and God will willingly, in his grace and in his love, bring you into the family of God. He'll change your life, and you now get to be connected to the true vine. Now, if God has worked in your heart in such a way this morning that that has uh, resonated with you, and you want that to happen in you, you desire that, and you've decided, I want to repent and believe, or maybe you've decided, I just want to hear more about what that would look like for me to do that, there are three ways that you can respond. Number one is with your Connect card. So when you walked in this morning, you received a worship guide. On the inside of that worship guide is what we call a connect card. At the top of that connect card is a bubble that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus. You want to hit that bubble with a pen, fill out your contact information, and throw that uh, connect card in the offering in the giving basket when it comes by later. The second way that you can respond is at the door on your way out. So I stand back there, shake hands, love for you to just uh, reach out and say, Hey, Josh, I've chosen to follow Jesus. I want to hear more about what this looks like. I'd love to talk with you about that. And then the third way, of course, is during this next song as we stand and we're going to sing about how Jesus paid every bit of the, the sin debt that we have to God the Father because of our rebellion. And as we sing that song, um, I would invite you to step out in the aisle. I stand back at the connect table, which is in the foyer area there. If you want to just walk back, just step out in the aisle while we're singing, come back and talk to me. I'd love to answer any questions that you might have or um, tell you about what it looks like for you to follow Christ. So I'll pray for us if we can bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.